gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Every fall and spring, I teach a class here at Holy Communion called Pilgrimage. It's a course for newcomers, for seekers, for those exploring the Christian faith and the Episcopal tradition. The class is open to those who have never been Christian, to those who have been away from the church for a long time, and it's open to those who are encountering a different sort of Christianity here at Holy Communion, a church in what our presiding bishop likes to call the Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement, our seemingly odd little corner of American Christianity. When we start the pilgrimage class with a look at the Bible, and I ask the group that gathers to talk with themselves, to talk with a a partner they don't know about a particular question. Have you read the Bible the same way across your life? Have you read the Bible the same way across your life? The answer for the capital E evangelicals is often no. I came to the Episcopal Church because my understanding of the Bible was not working for me. Many folks arrive here in the Episcopal Church because we marry same-gender couples or because we ordain women to lead worship. We don't understand certain biblical passages the same way that our Baptist or Missouri Synod Lutheran brethren do. We don't come to the same conclusions. We hold scripture, tradition, and reason together and we believe the Spirit is still speaking. And for the former Catholics who come to the pilgrimage class, the question, have you read the Bible the same way across your life, elicits a whole other set of questions. The Bible? (laughs) We were supposed to read that? Outside of church? Honestly, a lot of Episcopalians are right there with the Catholics. Catholics also come to scripture with a set of assumptions a set of ready-made interpretations. We share some of those across our denominations. On some, we differ. In Catholic, Evangelical, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, we all hear scripture with a certain set of inherited interpretations. And today's gospel is a powerful illustration of those inherited interpretations. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I wonder if some of you, like me, remembered the old translation, even as Chester read the new one. At my Roman Catholic college, I saw this phrase printed on posters outside the chapel each week. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The Roman diocese of San Diego, the Jesuits and the Dominicans, they were all looking to recruit nice young Catholic men into the priesthood. I didn't qualify. Neither did most of my college. The student body was 60% women. We'll talk more about the laborers Jesus has in mind in the moment, but this inherited interpretation is often built into how we read the scripture. Before we get to the laborers, I want to ask about the harvest. What exactly is this harvest Jesus imagines? Especially as Americans in perhaps the most evangelical of countries, we're inheritors of the tent-meeting tradition of the two great awakenings. Is this the harvest Jesus imagined? Is this what Jesus had in mind? People making their way down that old sawdust trail 
people joining the church, people becoming Christians. For a good part of our history, the church has assumed this was the meaning of Jesus' word harvest. The scripture scholar Ellen Davis, she cautions 21st century Christians living in the developed world to be especially careful when we encounter agrarian metaphors in the Bible. We often move quickly through descriptions of seeds, growth cycles, weeds, and waters. But Jesus lived in an economy centered on agriculture. The disciples lived closer to the land. Yes, many of them were fisher folk, but the shores of Galilee were surrounded by fields. They still are today. People lived and died on the cycles of the harvest. We often immediately substitute an image of gathering in new converts when we hear this passage. Jesus did tell his followers he would make them fishers for people. As such, this passage tends to make Episcopalians especially nervous. There's a word Episcopalians really dislike hearing from the pulpit, and I'm about to say it. Evangelism. The E word. I'm becoming more and more convinced that our particular American understanding of evangelism, an evangelism that is all about the growth of the congregation, of winning over converts to our particular brand of faith, filling the pews and the church coffers, that isn't what Jesus had in mind for his good news. It's not the harvest Jesus was talking about. Listen to what Jesus says. The harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are few workers. Part of living in an agrarian society, part of living closer to the soil, is knowing sometimes you're going to be hungry. In an economy like Jesus's, the image of an overabundant harvest would have made mouths water. The image of Jesus presents here, it's terrifying. There's a huge harvest, but there aren't enough workers. The produce may rot on the vine. The food won't make it to the hungry people. What an awful waste. When Jesus gave these instructions to the 72, he spoke in a society that knew more about fluctuating harvests, more about hunger. Those of us who go to the store week in and week out and pick our way through almost the exact same selection of shrink-wrapped produce, no matter the season, always in overabundant piles, we who expect a guarantee of freshness, we're a long way from these sources of food. We're a long way from this agrarian understanding of hunger. It's easy to hear this passage and say, Jesus is talking about winning converts. I'm not sure the interpretation should be that cut and dry, that prepackaged. If you follow the arc of scripture, Jesus is all about radical abundance. What if the good news of Jesus had more to do with actual food, literal food? What if Jesus didn't care how many folks slapped a fish on the back of their bumper? What if we proclaimed a message that had at least as much to do with food security for all God's people as it did with growing churches? What if we read a little further down in the story and saw the church as involved in expanding access to health care, healing the sick? 
What if our work of evangelism, which literally means proclaiming good news, what if our work of evangelism meant announcing and working for God's vision to feed the hungry, to care for the sick, to welcome the stranger? Could you imagine an evangelism campaign that was centered on human rights? Jesus is about breaking down walls, the fences that keep people from the harvest, the psychological barriers that keep people from one another, the racisms and phobias that empower a few and keep many of God's family from realizing their full potential. Jesus comes to break us out of our small-minded ways. Jesus comes to proclaim there is a harvest, an abundant harvest, There is more than enough, more than enough food, more than enough medicine, more than enough work, more than enough so that folks can have a living wage, more than enough so people can live lives with dignity. What if Jesus asked you to preach those words, and not only with your lips, but with your lives? What does that sort of evangelism look like? I am convinced that Jesus is concerned about evangelism, about announcing the good news. But the gospel Jesus preached, the good news of peace he sent his followers to proclaim, I am less and less sure that it sounds like what the church has passed off. Jesus wants everyone to hear the good news, that they matter infinitely, that they are worth everything. Jesus wanted people to know that their hunger deserved to be fed. Their wounds deserved to be healed. Jesus wanted people to know, all people to know, they have a place in God's world, a place that matters. Would you be willing to preach that gospel? Are you willing to be an evangelical for that message? Too often the voices in our world Even the voices in the church have preached something else, something that sounds like bad news. Jesus constantly taught against a vision of religion that tore people down. He didn't preach an anti-Semitism, but preached against a vision of religion that was limited, that cast people aside, ruled people out. In response, Jesus said, you matter to God. You belong to God. You are loved and valued and worthy. This message was countercultural then, and it is countercultural now. This message will meet resistance, external and internal. When people ask, How do you know? How do you know that I matter? How can you say that the hungry deserve to be fed, the left out belong in the center? How can you say that the immigrant should be welcomed? How can you say such a thing? That question is an invitation to respond. The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. When they ask you, out of fear or self-doubt, how can you believe the good news of the loving, life-giving, liberating one? That is the invitation to talk about the savior the leader, the teller of stories that you follow. Jesus doesn't need you to fool anyone. But when someone asks, how do you know that I matter? 
I am worthy of love. Name your source. Tell them you believe in a God who made us for one another, made us to matter, made us to be fed, to be healed, to welcome, to love. If they still can't hear you, don't respond violently. Simply shake the dust off your feet and say, still the reign of God has drawn near. Does that sound like a vision of good news, a vision of evangelism that makes you less nervous, Episcopalians? Don't get too comfortable yet. We're about to talk about whose job evangelism is. What about those laborers the posters are trying to recruit? On the day when we're welcoming a new priest in our midst, it seems an appropriate text. You might even think I picked it for today, but I didn't. This lesson and the other Gospels' versions of it, they're often read at ordinations. If we imagine Jesus' movement is simply about gathering folks into the church, it's easy to read today's passage as a pitch for more priests. Lori, I'm glad you're here. I'm grateful. There is indeed more work at Holy Communion than I can do, than Mark can do, than Chester can do. There's more work than our vestry can do. We're glad you're here. We know you're ready to work. We wouldn't have hired you if you weren't. But if you will give, let me give you one word of advice on your first Sunday, let it be this. Don't try and do all God's work yourself. You'll never succeed. I know, I've tried. Honestly, I don't think this passage is about recruiting more priests. For the Roman Catholics or for the Episcopalians, Jesus' vision was never as small as the churches. Notice how many people Jesus sends out. Not just 12, not a handful, 72. The work is bigger than some inner circle. Jesus' announcement belongs to all God's people, belongs to the whole church. Having Lori in our midst lets no one off the hook. In fact, from what I know of Lori, she's not going to let us off the hook anyway. (laughs) She's going to keep us even more busy. Lori, let me also offer you a word of encouragement. You've picked a great congregation. The community that gathers here at Holy Communion at our best knows that the harvest Jesus talks about, it isn't simply about growing our church. We have heard good news. Quietly, let me tell you, this is a congregation with a lot of evangelists. Maybe don't tell them I told you, but they are. At our best at Holy Communion, we question the assumptions we've inherited along with the tradition. We open scripture together and we challenge the simplistic readings. We make room for folks to know they are loved by God. We work together for justice. We work to feed the hungry, to clothe those who need to have their clothes washed. This is a congregation with a vision for welcome, an embrace of diversity, a desire to build and serve community. You have picked a great congregation to serve alongside. Every spring and fall, as I gather with folks in the pilgrimage class, I'm reminded and I'm challenged. So many of us have left behind a stifling understanding of faith, a limited interpretation of the Bible. This is a congregation of seekers, 
And sometimes we have more questions than we have answers. Honestly, after all this time, I'm more comfortable in a church that has more questions than answers. The churches with too many answers make me nervous. Today, Jesus leaves his followers not with an answer, but with a charged question. There is an abundant harvest, and yet people are hungry. What are you going to do about it? The work of Jesus isn't done until the hungry are filled. The gospel isn't good news if stomachs are groaning. The work of Jesus isn't done until the sick have access to healing. The work of Jesus isn't done when immigrants aren't welcomed, the imprisoned aren't visited. When someone is lonely and hurting and in danger, the gospel has not yet been truly proclaimed. The work of Jesus won't be done by you alone by me alone, by the Episcopal Church alone. God has too much good news to announce, to leave it in the hands of a carefully selected few. But friends, we have some good news yet to proclaim. Will you go? Amen.